This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Yes, it's been a a nice little break getting getting away and getting rested in the summer, but welcome back to uh, season two of the No Stroke Podcast. I'm I'm excited. You know, fall's my favorite time of the year. New Englanders, uh, I know we are. And when our guest coming on shortly is also a, a New Englander, so uh, we probably should have recorded this out uh, with some backdrop. But it's you know, with the fall comes an early early uh, sunset, so we might not have saw. And too much of the foliage change where where we both are yet, but maybe where our guest is. But uh, let's um let's let's jump in. Let's let's get right into sort of a, a quick keep our our uh, our our program plan go that we usually do a bit of in the news. And uh, what do you think about what what struck you this week? You'd like to see if maybe it was kind of similar to what I was alerted to. Yeah. Um- Great to be back, David. First of all, it's uh, it was a nice end of the stretch. I'm I'm going through a wedding season right now, so yes. it's been back to back weddings pretty much every weekend here. Um, one more this week, and then two more to close out October, and we're oh like a, yeah. So. And then I get back to my uh, favorite European country of Ireland right before Christmas. So good for you. Forward to the trip. Oh, good for you. Um, so Super. yeah, let's 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 chat. So we. We've seen a lot of, you know, funding obviously coming out into the space over the last few months, which is great. Um, but one thing that struck me, and I think a big takeaway, especially when we start to think about, you know, access to rehab, especially long-term rehab for stroke survivors, is a study that was published recently, and it was actually featured in NPR as well. So some of our viewers who may not stay close to you know, academic studies um, as closely, but may, might follow you know, NPR um, as it's a mainstream media outlet. Um, they put an article out recently, which was looking at stroke access longer than saying, like, what's the ideal time frame for a survivor to be going through rehab, right? And I know through our experience, through a lot of the research that's out there right now, they're saying immediate is is the best timeline. Uh, but the, what this research pointed to, granted it was a small study, and I'm sure you could touch on it a little bit more, is actually saying it's within the first two to three months. So not immediate, kind of let the brain heal a little bit and then mm-hmm. jump in. So curious from a clinical perspe- or a perspective, you know, what your thoughts are there. Yeah, no, uh, um, I thought you might bring that up. And, and, and certainly it was small study, first of all. Um, mm-hmm in Georgetown, I think was where the, some of the work was done. I forget one of the hospitals out, outside of it. They randomly assigned the group to three areas, uh, started therapy less than 30 days or immediately, um, 60 to 90 days, which you mentioned. And then after six months, and they really, this, this, the, they were, the results, like you mentioned, were favorable to that sweet spot being like 60 to 90 days, two to three months. And that kind of throws from a rehab standpoint, that kind of throws the um, the dreaded plateau word that we've used, right? We, oftentimes when we talk about chronic, usually you're moving someone through and saying, you know, I hate to use the term as good as it gets, but usually that window is when they're saying, well, sometimes services may stop or sometimes 
Um, rehab then moves to the home and then sometimes with it, the, the, the you know, halting services. So I, I'm really curious, you know, it's certainly going to be replicated. I think the study mainly looked at upper extremity function. So there's, as we know, there's a lot of components to, to uh, a lot of phases of care, a lot of um, problems that stroke survivors have to work through and overcoming some deficits. So um, it will be interesting to see, you know, um, when it's re repeated, if some of the, um, you know, what, what the AHA and ASA might come out with, but um, it's certainly something to watch. And like you said, NPR covered it. And so a lot in our community have been sort of, you know, I've had a few patients actually ask me if I saw it. So yeah. it's makes a lot of out. sense. You know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, an infant in the first couple of months of their life, really all they're doing is rolling on the ground and not, right. you know, drooling on themselves. And then it's, you know, that, <laughs> that stage of early toddle, you know, when they're toddlers that early toddle, I don't know what that might be, but <laughs> you know, they're toddlers <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, that, that stage of just rapid growth and yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah, really looking forward to, to some more kind of research happening along those lines. Um, so let's let's jump in here, David. Our, our guest is patiently waiting. Um, a guest that you and I are familiar with. I had the opportunity to actually see live um, as as a presenter, a keynote speaker in Dublin back in, I believe it was 2017. Um, and the theme, it was a health Excel event. So one of my previous uh, employers when I was over working in Dublin and living. But um, this guy came on stage after a whole day of, you know, normal keynote speakers with a guitar and started singing to the crowd and had everybody up singing. So it was around music is medicine. So this theme of how the brain is triggered during therapy, during whenever, when you're listening to music, but it's been a topic that's been around for a while. This music is medicine. I actually just saw CBS had a segment this morning on music as medicine as well and um, how a doctor was playing music for patients in, in a hospital room. But um, we're going to dive more into this topic with Brian Harris, um, who is the co-founder and CEO of MedRhythms. So let's bring him in and I will Absolutely. let you kick things. I'll let you kick sure. things off with Brian. It's a slow lag up there in Maine, I think, with the internet. <laughs> yeah, we we just got we just got internet up here, so you're gonna have to bear with me. <laughs> Hi, Brian. <laughs> Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast. It's great to to meet you. Um, uh, uh, Michael, our co-host here, um, just um, uh, was just sharing a story about when he heard you at a Health Excel event and talking about music is medicine and how music moves. And he was really, he was moved by, by your presentation. So we are, you know, we're pumped. It's, there's, there's no pressure here, Brian, but you are kicking off. You're a headliner for season two, season two Boy. in the fall of the no stroke podcast. We're pumped up and ready to go. We, we, um, no one can tell, tell your story better than you. So, I'll give a little brief, I'll give a little brief introduction, but I want you to, I want you to take over. And we, um, you know, I love when I hear um, some of your video casts and some of your presentations when you, so, so for our audience and our listeners, 
Brian Harris is the co-founder and CEO of MedRhythms and a digital therapeutic company. I like when you describe that your company is at the intersection of neuroscience, technology, and music therapy. I think that's a great way to kind of paint that picture of, of what you are, what you guys do. Um, I know a little bit about your story um, and how it came to be that music be, moved you, but I would, you know, first of all, welcome to the podcast. I'd love you to kind of, you know, take it from there and tell, tell your story, um, where you're from, first of all. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's certainly an honor to be here. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pressure here, I guess, for being, uh, <laughs> season two, uh, season headliner two. here. So I'll, I'll do my best, but I appreciate, uh, I do authentically appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, and anytime uh, I get an opportunity to share this journey that we're on at MedRhythms, it's always an honor. So I appreciate you taking the time to to, to tell it with me and uh, for the listeners to hear it. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up, <clears throat> I guess where the story began uh, is in a very, very small town in Maine called West Enfield, uh, which is off the central of Maine, uh, central part of Maine, um, about two hours north of Portland, which is two and a half hours north of Portland, which is probably anybody from, that's not in Maine, perhaps the only town you know about in Maine. So it's about two hour, two and a half hours north of that. Um, but undergrad was at the, the University of Maine um, in Orono, where I majored in uh, psychology and minored in music. Um, and that was actually where I got my first uh, interactions to uh, music therapy. I grew up as a musician. Um, uh, I started playing in school. Um, I played uh, first the viola, so for the listeners out there, that's kind of like a violin, except a little bit bigger, but it's not a cello. You play it like a violin, but it's a little bit bigger than that. Um, and I played pretty seriously throughout uh, middle school, high school, um, and also picked up drumming along the way. I fell in love with drum kit, playing jazz, blues, rock, um, all of that stuff. Um, and I knew very early on in my uh, life that uh, music was going to be a big part of my career. But I also knew very, uh, very early on that music education was not for me. So I knew that that was not my, uh, my path forward. And the, the performance route, while exciting, still was, I, I don't know, that was very compelling for me, but I knew that music was there. Um, and it was uh, actually at the University of Maine, if we fast forward a little bit, that I, that I learned about music therapy as a profession. Um, I had heard about it previously and really liked the concept that music therapy could be, which is using music to help people. And I thought, hey, maybe this is, this is the thing that I've been looking for, right? So using music to help people made a lot of sense, but I had no idea what it was. Um, I ended up taking a, a, an online course uh, at the University of Maine taught by a guy named Alan Wittenberg, who is, uh, at the time, he was the only private practicing uh, music therapist in the state of Maine. Um, and so um, I fell in love with the content and thought, this is, this is just fantastic stuff. Um, but that summer, I had an opportunity to intern with him. Um, and that was the experience that changed my life, uh, because I had an opportunity to work with him while he was working with um, children and adults with severe developmental delays. And Alan was not trained in the neuroscience of music, um, sort of what I sort of went on to do, but um, he was trained in more traditional music therapy, which is using music really for mental health and well-being. And he was working with these children and adults with severe developmental delays. And I'll never forget the very first session that I ever witnessed of live music therapy, which was with a boy who was about 18 years old, but he was physically and cognitively functioning at about a one-year-old level. So very, very severely disabled boy. 
Um, and they brought him, he was in a wheelchair. They brought him into the room and Alan started playing uh, the piano and he started to try to connect with this boy via music. Uh, within the first 10 minutes of that session of him being exposed to live music, um, he started cognitively functioning at a higher level than what anybody in his life had ever seen before. Um, and in terms of his you know, eye-opening and interacting with the environment to the point where his family and the people that worked with him every day at his day program were literally in tears because they couldn't believe how this boy was functioning. And it was at that moment that I realized that A, that this was my calling in life, that I needed to be using music in this way to help people. But number two, you know, historically, music has always been described as this magical thing that we have, right? Like music is magic. It makes us feel certain emotions. It evokes emotions that nothing else can. I think we've all experienced the times where, you know, I think oftentimes music can speak things when words fail, right? The mad, that magic part of music. But I thought there must be a reason why his brain allowed him to respond this way to music. And it must be explainable. And if we can answer that question of why this was possible, then that's when we could truly harness the power of music and then replicate it to help a lot of people. And it was really for me, my drive to this field was about understanding that question, but for the purpose of how do we replicate this? You know, if we see this response with this boy, why doesn't everybody have this? And why can't we standardize and objectify this a bit? And that's really what got me kicked off in my career to want to answer that question. Super cool. I mean, you that um, that must have just been like when you saw the family and how they reacted. You, did you grasp it until you saw their response or did you know right away like this? This was like, I don't know how much of his history you knew before you entered the room there, because that that's. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, and you do have that response. And I can tell you, I mean, I went on and was treating patients 40 hours a week in, in hospitals and such. And every time you see a response like that, you have the same reaction. Like it never gets, it you know, gets old. You don't become numb to that feeling of the power of music to have to change somebody's life, particularly with somebody who's been living with a condition, well, in this case, you know, his whole life. But I think, you know, I certainly, I certainly knew what the potential was to have happen in response to the interventions. Um, and I certainly knew his medical history, but when you see it with your eyes, that's a different response, you know, when you see it in person, but also, you know, the, the interesting thing about, uh, about, uh, you know, doing this work too, as clinicians is that we have the beauty of knowing the people who they are when we meet them. Right. So we don't know who they were pre-injury or pre that moment that we meet them in time. And so I think it's the context of having the family respond that way that just magnifies, uh, you know, the whole the whole experience. And you you later went on to do more work on the floors of Spalding. Right. Can you talk a bit how how that evolved from that experience met being mentored um, to, to, to really the evolution and the, the mission today behind MedRhythms. Yeah, of course. So we, uh, after I um, graduated from the University of Maine, um, it was, I was going to pursue a career in music therapy. And so um, I moved to Boston and got my master's degree at Lesley University, which is in Cambridge. 
um, and got a master's degree in music therapy. Um, and much of my focus during that time was trying to learn as much as I could about the human brain, about how it functioned, learning as much about sort of brain injury and disease that I could, and starting to piece these things together about how music could have this impact on the human brain. So I sort of went along that process. Um, and then uh, during my second year, I had to do an internship. Um, and uh, I got, uh, I was really focused on neuro rehab. Um, that's actually where my interest was, was really in stroke recovery and traumatic brain injury recovery was where I really found my, uh, my interest to be throughout schooling. And so I wanted to be at Spalding. Spalding is the Harvard Medical School affiliate for neuro rehab hospitals. They're the number two rehab hospital in the country in the U.S. Um, so just a very prestigious hospital doing neuro rehab. And so I wanted to be there and I wanted to be a part of that team. And I had heard just fantastic stories about their patients and the recovery of their patients and the teams that they had there. I wanted to be a part of it. So I was able to get an internship. They didn't have a music therapist at the time. So I came in as a grad student intern and uh, they let me, you know, uh, allowed me to, to treat some of their patients to sort of show them the power that this could have um, in their units. Um, and so after that uh, finished up and I graduated school uh, from grad school, uh, I got a board certification in music therapy. So that's much like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a speech therapist. So it's a national credential that is a board certification. Um, and then I also got certified um, in neurologic music therapy. So this is that actual, the, the, the correlation between the neuroscience of music and how that's clinically applied. Um, and then once I had done that, uh, you know, we spent a lot of work um, working with the hospital, uh, working with the president of uh, Spalding and really, I mean, from the top down and the bottom up to figure out how do we create a program? Um, at the hospital to actually full-time program to treat their patients. Um, and the president at the time was David Storto, um, and he was really a key to unlocking that position for the patients. But I got hired very luckily to uh, be their first uh, music therapist on staff um, and built their program from the ground up, uh, primarily in uh, stroke and, and traumatic brain injury. Um, and it was an amazing process. I mean, you're bringing something very new into a well-established field, but also a well-established hospital um, and treating patients in a novel way. Um, and that's sort of where I think the, the trajectory and sort of the, the, the mission and the core of MedRhythms began was, you know, say on the floor of, of uh, Spalding's units. And I believe at that time, it, you became uh, quite in high demand if, from, what I, from what I understand. Is that part of what um, inspired you to um, think about scaling this idea? Yeah, it, it was really a, it was really an incredible process, and I you know was very fortunate to um, you know at Spalding to be around some of the world leading doctors in in neuro rehab um, and to be able to work with them every day and to learn from them, to bounce ideas off them, to be supported by them. But what we were finding is that patients were getting better faster with greater results. And we now had the neuroscience through my training to not only explain how this was possible, but also how we could standardize and replicate it. And so we were seeing objective improvements in our patients um, across functioning areas. You know, we were tr treating patients uh, in movement, so walking, upper extremity, um, speech and language training, cognitive training, and we were seeing these objective improvements 
that we could then replicate and standardize across diagnoses. And so very quickly after starting the program, the demand for my services, both from physicians in the hospital who are writing orders for me to see their patients, but also from patients and their family members who were saying, you know, Ryan, you help my dad walk again. How do I get more of this when I leave the hospital? Um, and I distinctly remember how awful of a conversation that is to have with patients and their family members. As a clinician saying, hey, you know, yes, your father, your, your brother, your mother, your sister has made fantastic progress in this care. When you leave the hospital, unfortunately, there's not much that we can do about it. And that's a really terrible conversation. And the reality is there are other music therapists. There's a smaller number of music therapists that are trained in neurologic music therapy. And then there's a sort of smaller number that we can get access to anywhere, even in Boston, there's a very small number. So the, the likelihood of being able to continue that care was very minimal. Um, and so that's what really guided the beginning of what became MedRhythms. And, um, we actually started as a therapy practice. So I was treating patients 40 hours a week in the hospital and then leaving the hospital and doing in-home care in the evenings and on weekends, just treating patients. My, many of them were my patients as they left the hospital. You know, I would continue to treat them. Um, and then we started hire, to hire other clinicians who were trained in neurologic music therapy to do this work. Um, and that started going well and we were, you know, we were growing, but it very quickly, we very quickly realized that we were not going to be able to scale that practice in to the extent into the vision that we had, but also to the capacity by which we uh, could um, or, or should, you know, when I, when I got into, and you know, we'll fast forward, I'm sure and talk a bit about the technology, but you know, when we started MedRhythms, I didn't grow up saying, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I certainly didn't say like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur of a high growth tech startup in healthcare, right? Like that was not where my life trajectory uh, I thought was going. Um, for me, it was, I saw a need. I found a solution to the need and therefore felt like I had a responsibility to do something about it. And that was the drive to entrepreneurship for me was really feeling like, I needed to do something about it. And that sort of, you know, that, that old saying, if you don't do something about it, who will, right? And so when we first started MedRhythms, it was really this grand vision that we wanted to make a global impact. And the challenge with growing a therapy services company um, is that it's a very slow and expensive process, meaning that uh, uh, getting uh, um, hospitals to uh, buy services um, that are not easily reimbursed by insurance is really challenging because you have to find creative ways and some uh, hospital settings just simply don't have the capacity to do that. Yeah. Um, similarly, you know, it's privately run through out-of-pocket expenses. Um, so, you know, that's a limiting factor to access to some demographics of people, which we didn't like. And um, we still operate, by the way, this therapy practice, and it's a thriving and growing therapy practice. We've added teletherapy services and things like that. And I'm very proud that we've now been able to build some, um, some capacity to expand our reach in terms of access as it relates to um, the financials. Um, but, you know, the other really challenging part was we just couldn't simply find enough clinicians that are trained in this work for the scale that we have. Um, you know, if you, if you think about uh, some correlations here, which is really interesting, you know, 
there are about um, 3,000 neurologic music therapists trained in the world. Okay, so if there's 3,000, for some people listening, that might sound like a lot. Well, here's a fun statistic for you. Because in the United States, the largest physical therapy company, company has 10,000 employees, and they own 3% of the physical therapy market. So when we think about what we would always preach, and I guess what I would always preach is that the results of this are so good, this needs to be standard of care. And that's really where we make the impact that we've always dreamed of, is when this becomes standard of care globally. And the reality is, as much as we want the field of music therapy to grow, and I want it to grow like wildfire, the reality is, when that's the numbers that we are currently dealing with, there's no possible way for the field to become standard of care because there's just not enough people to do it. So that's when we started to think about, well, how do we reach more people? And the answer is technology. Um, and the advancements of technology have now given us an opportunity to, um, in some ways, replicate what clinicians can do in the clinic and bring it to people's homes. And that was really the root of our digital therapeutics is thinking about how do we package that and uh, send it to people's homes? Yeah. Hey, great segue and great explanation. And I know, I know Mike's chomping at the bit because he wants to get into the technology. So go ahead, Mike. Yeah, thank you. And first off, Brian, I just have to respect the fact that for a man who is um, in music as medicine and is preaching this, like you do have the best album of all time right behind you. So <laughs> and for those watching... And he does have Abbey Road. <laughs> it happens That's to it. be a walking cover, right? Right. So there's some oh, correlations. You got it. All. Yeah, I like yeah. it. I like it. <laughs> now, I hope it's not just product placement and it's actually one of your favorite albums. <laughs> I mean, how can it if you're a if you're a lover of music? Well, maybe it's it a strong statement, but I'm going to say it. Yeah. I'm going to say it. If you're a lover of music in general. How can it not be one of your favorite albums? Like just for what it means to music. How can it not Absolutely. be? Right? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, kudos to you on that. And kudos at, you know, the success that you've had as well, Brian, you know, since we've met. And I know to kind of go back to that Health Excel event, you know, we, it was a full day and we knew music as medicine was on was on the cards as a, as a topic that day. But, you know, I, I was in a room and we saw, you know, we had folks like Lisa Soonin, big time investors who've been in this digital health, digital therapeutic space for a long time. Um, and a full day of keynotes of, you know, your regular people up there showing a PowerPoint presentation, talking through the technology, talking through the financials, saying, hey, this is what we're doing. What could we do? Um, and then you got on stage and you had your guitar and you actually showed what the power of this could do, right? Of getting people into that euphoric state and, and firing those that those neurons and like the actual science of what science of music is is doing. Um, you know, bring me back to like you know those conversations when when you said, all right, this is something that can scale. This is this is a new area. You're now starting. You're coming from the cl clinical space. You have this early prototype you you've shown you know that that this works in a clinical setting but now you're trying to scale you're talking you're going from spalding a, a, a therapy clinic to talking to digital therapeutic big time investors who are they've seen a lot of this space they they think you know where's this music medicine gonna go what were some of those conversations like and and how did you seed yourself from a the technology point of view as well to really show that this is something that is 
that has success and we're and we're going to grow yeah it's a great question and i think we attach a uh, sort of approach this from uh, a number of ways i mean number one as you think about being in the clinic and we think well where do we start right mm. so we have a digital therapeutic that's focused on improving walking i mean we could have built a speech and language product or a cognitive product etc what was really interesting about the walking space is that number one um that there was the most amount of objective research there to show that the intervention that we were utilizing rhythmic auditory stimulation works to improve walking two it's very quantitative in nature in terms of the outcome you improve somebody's gait speed you reduce falls you improve symmetry like these are things that are very quantitative that people understand but also the healthcare ecosystem understands why improving walking is important for people who've had strokes or brain injuries right like this is a well understood thing so we said let's start there also it's where technology had advanced to the point that we felt like the technology was good enough to be able to replicate what a clinician could do or actually what i'll say is when we first started we felt like the technology was good enough to get close to what a what a clinician could do you fast forward two or three years and i will never forget the moment that this happened is i was involved with literally training the algorithm of how to respond to patients um and so i would go through and make changes and our our uh engineers would code it etc and i'll we'll never forget the first time that we had we were doing testing and there was a full session that was done um uh with me being completely hands free and the uh, uh our product responded exactly how i would have and i had this moment to say holy crap like this product could be actually as good as a clinician fast forward about a week we continue to make refinements to the product so i'm uh we do another one of these full sessions of testing and what started happening was the algorithm started making changes about well we'll call it a few seconds faster than i would have and i was going wait is that right and then i'd watch and i'd say that's exactly right and i had the moment to say actually this technology could probably be better than a clinician at this intervention because it's so quantitative and it's so objective that the the high fidelity data that we collect from the sensors that we use um can actually start to pick up changes in people's gait faster than you can see them with the human eye and so that's when i said this is the potential to scale and to make an impact unlike what we even maybe thought was possible. So as we go about thinking about how do you how do you take that and how you scale and you're starting to talk to investors and partners and these potential partners and these types of things. It was really important to us from day 1 that we did it the right way. So that we built the company in a way that was clinically valid, that was rooted in scientific rigor, that uh we could make claims upon that we knew would make clinical efficacy so we knew that it would make changes in people's lives but that also we could build a case for reimbursement for FDA regulation for this to be prescribed because we felt like those outcomes were what would really move the needle and we felt like there was merit behind what we were seeing in terms of the outcomes that it needed to be done that way we had tried to be convinced by some people some early investors potential investors in the company that I mean we said no to who wanted us to go sort of a an early like direct to consumer route build an app let people download it on the on their iPhone let them walk to music it's great 
that was not the route that we wanted to for a lot of reasons. And yeah, we can go there if you want, but there's a lot of reasons why that's not the right way to bring this to market. But what's also interesting is that there's also a paradigm shift that you have to have a bit in people's perception of what music is and what music does, right? So to your, when I was there in, in, in Dublin doing this exercise, everybody knows that music makes you feel good, right? So when we talk about music as medicine, does that mean it is good for mental health? Does that mean it is good for all of these other uh, sort of what we call social science reasons? And the answer is yes, 100% music does those things. But it's time that we start to shift that paradigm to looking at music purely through the lens of neuroscience. And why that matters is because when you can start to understand neurally how music is really targeting the brain, and we actually now explain how music impacts the brain through a mechanism of action. So mechanism of action is the terms that pharmaceutical companies use to explain how their, how their drugs work, um, by how their physiological act, uh, interactions are, so the biological interaction between the drug and the brain or the body. Uh, it's called the mechanism of action. We now have such a neural understanding of music that we can explain it as a mechanism of action, which means that we can then more purposefully use it to target very specific neural circuitry to improve outcomes. And that's the narrative that we need to tell here. That this is not like, mm. hey, put on music while you walk or put on music and it makes you feel better. We're using very specific interventions and very specific elements of music to target the damaged motor system to improve functional outcomes in walking. And the outcomes that we're seeing, in fact, are as good, if not better than drugs that have tried to be launched here. And so with that, we say, because of the outcomes that we're seeing, because of how our understanding of it, it needs to be done in a, in a, in a rigorous way. People need to be safe when using the product. Um, we need to have FDA regulation. It should be a prescription product and it should be reimbursed as a drug. If we are going to produce clinical outcomes that are better than a drug, we should be paid like a drug. And so, you know, as we thought about the early days of this, obviously you've got to get the technology right, right? Like the product has to work, you know, right? So there's that. But it was also the narrative that we felt was fundamentally important to the building of long-term value of both the company. But when there's long-term value built in the company, that means there's long-term value to the patients that we serve, right? And we felt like if we wanted to have any sort of competitive advantage. And if we wanted to unlock the real potential that music has to change people's lives, it had to be looked at like a drug and not like a tech app or, or, or tech product or, a, or a, a music app that you listen to. But it has to be looked at like a drug because it's that good. It's an amazing story. And say for, I mean, the, the folks at home. So, I mean, you've, you've talked through this from early clinical settings and, you know, you were, you were prescribing, you were in the clinics with folks. So now that we are out of the clinic and this is really a digital therapeutic and there's some telehealth aspects to it, like how is that experience for a user today? Right. So if, if you were to prescribe this to one of our users, for instance, how, what, what's that session look like? What, what's the experience of med rhythms for a stroke survivor? Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. And just for some clarity, we are pre-commercial. Uh, we are coming up, getting ready to submit to the FDA for the final step of that process um, yeah, for our stroke product. So um, just to give some context to sort of company overall. So we have a 
uh, our lead asset or our lead product, the one that we're furthest along is, is for the chronic stroke population. So specifically for chronic stroke. So those that are mm-hmm. three to six months post-stroke where, you know, there's, it's been shown that, I mean, there's not really a lot out there uh, to help these patients to recover their walking. It's usually believed when people um, uh, are told that they're never going to recover again, or that they've plateaued. You know, I think if there's, uh, we hear that all the time from our patients that we serve that, oh, you know, once you hit a year, that's it. Well, we fundamentally know now from neuroplasticity research and from the research that we've done at MedRhythms, that's fundamentally not true. And so there's nothing really out there for these patients to improve walking. So that's why we wanted to target that population because it's a biggest, a biggest unmet need. But the intervention works across neurodisease and injury. So Parkinson's disease, MS, uh, even in aging and Alzheimer's and that type of thing. And so we have, a, have uh, product assets across each of those populations. But we're furthest along in our chronic stroke asset for which we've done uh, early clinical trials. We're in the midst of a large scale clinical trial right now that's about to wrap up. Um, and uh, based upon our early data, last fall, summer, last summer, we were granted breakthrough designation by the FDA um, based upon their feeling that we have the potential to meet an area of high unmet medical need, e.g. the chronic stroke population where nothing exists. So the product that we're building now that um, we'll be pushing to market um, sooner rather than later is that um, it has two sensors. We call them biomechanical foot-worn sensors. So it's actually a small sensor that connects to your shoe. There one goes on each shoe and that collects real time data about how the patient walks. So we get things like uh, your stride length, your symmetry, variability, your cadence, which is steps per minute, uh, gait speed. Um, So all these clinical measures that a physical therapist or a physiatrist or doctor would be looking at in your assessments. that data feeds into uh, uh, our algorithms, which are based upon a mobile device. Um, so think of that like a like an Android or an iPhone device, um, but it's there's no cell capacity. It's just a, a mobile device. Um, and then music is delivered via headphones. So it's actually like a, a Bluetooth connected sensors to a mobile device, Bluetooth connected headphones to a mobile device. Some of you may be thinking, Uh, I could never connect three different Bluetooth things to a mobile device. Um, And we had done a lot of testing with end users with chronic stroke survivors um, and found that to be the case is that that's really difficult to do um, for anyone. (laughs) Like those are technological issues that are difficult. So we have hard coded all of that together meaning that the, uh, the two foot worn sensors and the headphones actually come pre-synced to the, the device. So when you open the box and you turn on the mobile device, everything's ready to go. There's no syncing that needs to happen. It's, it's all hard coded there. And so essentially when somebody's doing a session, so they put the sensors on, um, you can put the phone or the mobile device in your pocket, anywhere you want, set it on the table. Doesn't matter. Have your headphones on. Um, the, the, the user walks in silence for about 45 seconds or so. So it's a period of time at the beginning uh, in silence um, where our system is calibrating your baseline data. So basically how you're walking without music. So when you come into the session, where are you at today? 
then based upon that data of where you are that day, um, music will begin to play. And the music that's playing um, will be uh, roughly around the tempo that you are walking at. So if you're walking at 65 steps per minute, you'll hear music at 65 beats per minute. What we then do is uh, as you walk throughout the session, um, it's gonna be some good music you're gonna listen to. Hopefully it'll be fun at the same time. Like that's not the purpose, but I, I hope it's an engaging experience and that's the feedback that we get. Um, once you walk, we are tracking all the time your real-time data on a step-to-step -step basis. So we are getting clinical grade data from the sensors about how you're walking. So your variability, your symmetry, your cadence, all of this data. And then based upon how you walk, if, you're, if your walking is improving, we then speed the tempo of the music up um, by a little bit um, uh, to drive you to walk a little bit faster. So typically the deficits that stroke survivors have in walking are primarily a slowing of speed and also asymmetry. And the research shows that when you walk to music, the symmetry improves and that uh, if you speed up over time, the general quality of your walking improves. So that's what we're trying to do is get the, the, the users to walk faster. But we only speed you up when you're safe to do so. So if there's changes in your variability or in your uh, symmetry or the general quality of your gait that um, maybe you wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't want you to walk any faster, we don't speed the music up. And when I say we, that's a sort of general we, I'm talking about the algorithm. This is what the algorithm is trained to do. And so to take that data in um, and then change the music based upon how you're walking. And this happens all in real time. So this is a product that is designed to be used in home autonomously without the need of a clinician present. So you can do this by yourself in your home and the algorithms change the music based upon that real time. We're getting microseconds of data. So the uh, algorithms change the music in real time based upon the data that's coming in. Um, a user can pause at any time if they get tired and they can sit down and push play when they're ready to walk again. Um, and then they do about a 30 minute session. Um, and it's a 30 minute session of active walking with the algorithm going, pushing them um, to walk better. Um, and that's the, you know, the beauty of the uh, real-time data is that the algorithm can customize the intervention for that patient on that day in that moment. So based upon how you're functioning in that moment, the algorithms know what to do. That's, uh, I, I, I've got to ask this. So the, in, in your research, what, what seems to be that that sweet spot you said you, you about 30 minutes on the time is this is this daily is it one time a day multiple and the intensity is how are those things monitored yeah it's it's a good question um it looks like from our, our data that we have right now that um around three times per week um for chronic stroke so keep in mind this is folks in that chronic stroke phase each uh, population will be different in terms of that because everybody has sort of different presentations and different needs. Um, but in the chronic stroke population looks to be about three times per week. But um, what's really interesting, you know, the, the beauty of this is that there's very little side effects of doing this and you can't really overdose on it. And I say that sort of backhandedly, right? It's sort of funny to think about it that way because everyone's like, well, obviously not. But that means that you can do this as much as you want. And the more that you do it, the better it's going to be, right? So the contraindication is sure, if you do it six hours a day, you're probably gonna get tired, your muscles might hurt. We don't really want you to do that. 
But doing a 30-minute session every single day actually reinforces neuroplasticity. Frequency and consistency is important to improve functional outcomes. So we encourage people to do as much as they want, but it looks like that three times per week is a, for 30-minute sessions is about what's necessary um, to start to see those improvements. Perfect. Interesting. Am I... Um... So from perspective, like you see a lot of these digital therapeutics that are coming out, right? They, everyone is kind of now tapping into this behavioral chain, health coaching aspect of it. Mm -hmm. like, all right, to drive better outcomes, we need that human touch engagement to drive that, right? All right are, are there any thoughts around that engagement? And I don't know if that ties back to kind of your commercial model as well around um, kind of engagement within the, the platform. But yeah, if you touch on that, that'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this has been the sort of, the evolution of digital therapeutics too, even if you look at the industry where, you know, early digital therapeutics were really sort of these uh, sort of health and wellness companion apps that were sort of behavior change modification, right? So trying to get people to, uh, you know, whether it's adhere to drugs or adhere to some uh, cognitive behavioral therapy regimen and things like that. Now, what we're starting to see, particularly in the neurospace, is some more companies like ours that are coming out that are really using an external stimuli to directly target neural circuitry mm -hmm. to actually have impact on disease progression. So actually like trying to have an impact on PD, MS, stroke, et cetera. But to your point, when you, when, which I think is what you were sort of asking about, which is, you know, in order for patients to get better, they have to use it. Right. So you have to actually be engaged with the product to see the results. So there's a level of behavior modification that's necessary to get the results of the product. So if you sit on your couch, you're not going to get better at walking. Right. So um, what we get excited about is is um, we actually have a product lab that uh, what we call it, which is our internal um, uh, user testing system. So we actually send kits out into the wild, so to speak, to people, stroke survivors all over the country and ask them to like put the sensors on and to interact with the product to, to, and then to give us feedback about what that experience was like. Because we need to create a seamless experience from day one to the day that they ship the kit back from being able to put the sensors on, to log in, the user interface, and so we have been very proud of this, that we've always had what we call the user in the loop um, or the patient in the loop. Since the day we launched from the hospital, we've been asking stroke survivors to help us build the algorithms. They, we've, we had stroke survivors to help us build our unit user interfaces, to help us think about music. And we also built, you know, we've been very lucky to have um, some uh, world-renowned neurologists and researchers in our, on our scientific advisor, advisory boards. So we have just some rock star neuroscientists, neurologists, et cetera. Um, but as important as that, we also have a patient advisory board that works alongside our scientific advisory board to give us feedback on product development and product experience so that we make sure that we get the experience right or as right as we can get it right uh, before we launch. This is going to be an iterative process. We're going to get feedback. We're going to make changes to ensure that we can build an experience that people are motivated by, that they're engaged in, that they're rewarded by. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that we have a bit of an advantage in the sense that we use music, right? So hopefully I think the music will help people want to be engaged. Um, but that's going to be, you know, if we're, you know, 
that's going to be one of our our biggest challenges i think long term is to really figure out how you you know adherence to therapy is awful like the statistics around adherence to things like physical therapy either even in home doing your exercises at home or going to outpatient therapy not it's not even just it's not even just physical therapy but uh adherence to healthcare is astronomically low so the hurdle that we have to get over is how do we get people to engage in their rehab and to engage in the product and so you know we're going to have to be really thoughtful about that yeah. I mean, exercise is indeed the best medicine with some of the best, um, if, if you're going to overdose on anything, it, it's, it's, it's often a gateway to be able to improve other behaviors to Mike, Mike's point about the adherence part, but, you know, I've been involved with some research about, you know, you, you make that one change and you're moving better and all the things that come with that reducing risk, but then it makes you more open to thinking about how you're eating, how you're sleeping, how you're. You know, and it's just, um, it's, it, you know, I want to, I mean, I, I know Mike, I, I speak to you, mm-hmm. we could talk to you all night on this, but we want to be respectful of your time and thank you for all the work you're, we, we've been in this for a bit trying to like, you're tackling stroke and we can't thank you enough because they're, you know, in, in stroke in gait and walking in independence. We know that there's somewhere between three and four million, I don't know the exact number, but there's a lot of folks with chronic movement impairments after a stroke. And the number one thing that I get to this day of people reaching out, especially when things shut down during the pandemic, what, what do I do? You know, my clinic's closed. So we know that therapy is eventually moving into the home. I really feel passionately that you're right where it's at and going to be. Um, and I don't know, Mike, if you have, um, you know, anything to add on the, on the, we talked about the technology. We talked about, um, you know, how, how our users can learn more about where, what, what's next for med rhythms and how they might get involved. Yeah. I'd I'd love for you to maybe touch on, you know, the product lab a little bit. You know, is there any, any way that with more clinical research, anything coming out that our viewers could kind of, be participants in any of that upcoming research and um, you know yeah happy to... absolutely so uh there, i would say there's two primary ways um to get involved now i mean as i said we are uh are, are pre-commercial so once we are post-commercial once we have an actual uh, a launch um you know where you can follow along with us follow us on facebook linkedin check out our website but once we're post-launch obviously we hope to be able to help as many people as possible, right? So there's uh, there's that. But pre-launch, there's two primary ways to get involved is we will continue to do clinical trials. And we've historically done them in different geographic locations in Chicago, et cetera. Um, um, so I would say keep it an, uh, out, uh, a look for those uh, announcements. And those are actual clinical trials where we're trying to look at you know clinical outcomes. But we also have our product lab, which I mentioned, which is really focused on um, all things user experience. So uh, how do people interact with the product? How would they use it, giving us feedback, et cetera. Um, that is uh, not intended to be sort of clinical in nature, meaning we're not looking at clinical outcomes. We're looking at, uh, we need feedback, but you get to use it. You use, get to use see and use the product by virtue of giving us feedback. Um, you can find more information about that, uh, www.medrhythms.com. Um, 
I know that I made up the name of this company, but I probably used the worst word in the English language, which is the word rhythm, because it's probably the hardest word to spell in the English language. So I'm not sure why I said that, but um, it's www.medrhythms. So if you go to www.medrhythms.com, um, you can find more information about Product Lab where you can sign up. Um, we actually, we are always looking um, for new folks to be a part of that who are willing to, to, to give us feedback um, and particularly people who don't know us so that we can have a, you know, a, 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 a non-biased um, uh, feedback from a product experience as well. So we encourage you to do that also. And I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. I'm not, I'm just thankful. I'm not the only one that was having trouble, right? Spelling rhythm correctly. So it happens on a daily basis. Well, this, <laughs> so. I, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I didn't get a t- chance to ask you about Hell's Bells. So we're going to have to maybe have a follow up at some point because, you know, I've gone back and forth about, you know, why that song resonated with me with my own gait and return to running. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, at some point, you know, Mike and I, we we have done a a on location season one. We did an on location podcast. So. Portland, Mike. How's how are the micro brews up there? Uh, the, how are the breweries? Uh, well, um, I am not biased. This is an objective. This is an objective statement I'm about to make. They are the best in the world. Okay, I that's enough. It, We're there. You, we'll schedule you it now. It here first. You heard it here. <laughs> Portland, Maine, best beer in the world. Okay, and you're welcome anytime. I love to please, love to some on. at some point learn more about the the Rue Institute and you work in, in partnership with Northeastern there, um, Mike. Um, anything that you want to take us out with or any final closing thoughts, Brian? You would like to add here? I I don't want I want to be very appreciative of your time. No, I'll just say I just appreciate the opportunity. As I said, it's at any time we get to share this journey that we're on, it's always an honor. And um, you know we've we've been pushing really hard. Uh, over the past few years to get to a point where we can really get this into the hands of, of the people who need it. Um, that was what we started out day one to do and what we wake up every single day to do. Um, and we're getting close. Uh, but this is certainly a uh, not done in isolation and not done in a, in a vacuum. And, you know, these types of opportunities and just in terms of advocacy to people who may need the services, who don't know that they're out there or, you know, the doctors that we work with and investors, right? Like this is a this is a, a robust and complex system um, to grow a, a company in healthcare. And so uh, I'm just appreciative of the opportunity and I'm always, always happy to help any way that we can. Anything we can do to, to, to help you further that mission where you are too. So. And from a man who, who picked up his the viola at a, at a very young age to, to now where you are, congratulations. It's a, uh, it's nice to see, see success, especially in this field. It's, it's a, area clinical area that that needs needs the help so continue to drive and we'll preach the good word i appreciate it very much with that said we're gonna wrap up our show thank you again to our guest brian harris with this has been a, a great hour spent together and hopefully we can do this again over um not going to hold you to a particular uh, location, but uh, now that you put that out on the map, that uh, Portland has the best. Uh, Rhode Island is up and coming. I have to tell you, just we got a long way to go. But Mike, we're going up north. We're going north. Okay. 
All right, Brian. Have a nice evening. Thank you. All right. You as well, Brian. Thank you both so much. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the No Stroke Podcast. Be sure to tune in each week for more knowledge on stroke recovery in the brain with tips, technology, and interesting Stroke Thriver interviews where they share their success to enable you on your own healing journey. Make sure to hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. Mike and I will love to ask you to rate and review our show to enable us to grow our audience. Please check the show notes to follow us on social so you can connect and reach out to find more about advertising with us or becoming a guest on our show. Until next time, stay well, keep the faith, and keep moving forward.